everyone. My name is Phil Howard, your host of Technology with a Beard Extravaganza. And this is the place where you come to learn, but also hear random stories of awesomeness where extraordinary people have become extraordinary. And today, I'm warning everyone right now that what you are about to hear is top might be secret security stuff. So if you are listening to this show, then be prepared to go into hiding for at least one year. We have Jeremiah Grossman with us today. Um, Jeremiah, welcome. Thank, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I, I usually bring the fear wherever I go. <laughs> <laughs> now, to, to be honest with you, um, I don't even know, you know, I don't even know where to begin because you have been thanked publicly by Microsoft, Google, Facebook, um, correct me if I'm wrong, and many others for privately informing them of weaknesses in their systems. So in other words, you have hacked these giant companies, but you know, before we even get into that awesomeness, what's even cooler is that really you could have just walked through the door and started choking people out. But I know, <laughs> I, I, I know you wouldn't do that, but you are a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and I don't know what, actually which deserves more deserves to be raised higher up. I mean, I know the black belts would say definitely jujitsu, but I know that the hackers out there would say, come on, man, he, ha he hacked Microsoft. So how I found you, I actually wanted to find a jujitsu guy in security because, you know, we talk a lot about sports and sales and people are always talking about golf. It's, it's golf is it's the next golf tournament. Everything's golf sponsor my whole sponsor this. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd really like to sponsor like an inner city kids jujitsu club. Um, but long story short, it's, you know, I literally, I'm looking at my Mizuno golf clubs right now, but I could turn, you know, I'm looking at them to the left and I could turn to the right where my gi, you know, is usually hanging over like the trash can drying out and it has blood on it. And it's a Mizuno, you know, it could be a Mizuno gi. So anyways, I'm very happy to have you on the show. It's um, and it, so I'll let you start off, man. Which one do you think is harder, being a black belt in jiu-jitsu or hacking Microsoft? Oh, I have no idea. Both are pretty hard. But, you know, it's funny. It's, uh, you know, when you're telling that story, it's like, you know, which is more cool, the hacking part or the black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu part? And it kind of reminded me that, you know, when I go into the academy, you know, and train jiu-jitsu, everybody is very interested that I hack for a living. And then when I'm in my hacker circles, everybody's like really impressed that I'm a jujitsu black belt. So the other side is always interested by the other one. And I remember this one time I was training with my first time ever training with Forrest Griffin, you know, former UFC champ. And I got it on video. Um, I'm training with him. Right. And he's like all over me. He's a big dude. And uh, and we're going back and forth for like five, six minutes. And he has this comment. He goes, he goes, you're like, you're the toughest nerd I've ever seen. <laughs> he and, and I just like in the middle of the match, I just start cracking up and I like lost position, got like choked, but it was just so comical. It was awesome. Oh, it was like, it was like a trick for him. You know, like sometimes people say like, you know, like, Hey, stop tickling me. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, but, you know, but you know, when we, when we learn about fighting and self-defense, you know, if you're at, you know, on the on the ground, we know jujitsu wins, jujitsu and wrestling wins. If you're in a clinch, we usually think wrestling and judo wins. It's the most proficient art. And near footy art striking range, usually Muay Thai wins. Any further than that, I'll take the computer and hack it. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, I actually I was I was looking at some of your followers the other day, and I can't remember who. So there's some of the guys got like a really big beard that, and I think like I might be like one inch short of his, but he's you know he's going on about how like the Boeing like airplane was like hacked the other day. Is that have you been following that? Is that a big thing? I did, and uh, most of the details of how they did it are classified right now. But apparently, the the plane was sitting in front of them. They didn't need any special access. It was a remote compromise, which means they were able to remotely take control of, of some important parts of the plane. And, uh, you know, that part, you know, for the insiders isn't the most impressive part of the, or the scariest part. It was later on in the article where they said how the planes are put together, their attention towards computer security, and how much it costs to actually make a change and improve this stuff. It was said something like any time you change a line of code on the plane, because these planes are flown with software, it's going to cost them $1 million. So if you find a little problem when you're hacking it and they have to fix it, it's going to cost them a million dollars per line. That's significant. Yeah. And then it's like, I don't know how many billions it would be to go just from like four digit to five digit flight numbers. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the the systems that they're designed for airline travel, I believe, are date back to the '70s with a whole lot of upgradings, a whole lot of upgrades. So yeah, it's uh, our whole world is built on legacy systems and software, and it's very difficult and expensive to upgrade at this point. Which is which is really the probably the number one issue we deal with in uh, technology, at least when it comes to security. It's not so much that we it's you know it's not difficult to find problems and exploit things and hack things. It's defense is really hard because it's expensive. Mm, mm. So, all right, I need a story. I need a backstory. Did you used to be, did I read today that you used to be 300 pounds? I did. My first day of jujitsu, I weighed about 305. So, I mean, that's crazy. How, <laughs> I mean, it's not crazy because, you know, jujitsu, like jujitsu nerds, we get really into the sport and we don't understand why no one wants to do it. And we're always trying to recruit people. Like we're out there. Uh, uh, proselytizing people to become to come into jujitsu. At least I am. I'm always trying to say, like, hey man, come on, you gotta go to jujitsu. It's like, you know, it's awesome. It's life altering. Um, so you came in. You were 300 pounds. What kept you coming back? Because you're a black belt. And, and well, first of all, how many years have you been a black belt? I mean, how many years did it take you to become a black belt? Oh, uh, it took me about nine years. Nine years. Okay, so that's. I mean, I would say that that's actually below the curve. I mean, I would think the average would be like 14 years or something greater. And, you know, there's yeah. Convention says it's about two years per belt. You know, something like 10 years if you're consistent. So I was training, you know, three, four days a week every week for as long as I can remember, and just grinding it out. So I didn't. I never really had any lulls. So I was able to complete it mostly on time. Did you ever have like a doldrums moment, or like they say people get stuck in the blue belts, like myself? Like I've been a blue belt for, I mean, on and off for like four or five years. It's it's ridiculous, you know. But I'm, I would like to tell myself I'll never give up because you know I've moved and I've had kids and work got a hold of me and I've got seven kids and you know that can get in the way. But you know what I'm saying? What's the what was kind of like the what kept you coming back? Because to me that's an amazing story. Well, what kept coming back is the same thing that got me started in the first place. So. Uh, a co-worker, you know, I was always a big UFC fan, like back to UFC one or two, I was always a big UFC fan. And I heard about this jujitsu thing, you know, Hoist Gracie was just kicking the crap out of everybody uh, on the ground, just 180 you know, pounds, six foot one guy. And I was thinking to myself, okay, I, I want to learn this stuff. I'm 300 pounds. I'm used to being physical, but I want to learn this stuff. So my, a co-worker and I, we go down and we find, he finds an academy and we walk in. I'm a big dude. And, uh, 
you know, I'm from Hawaii and it's a very a fighting culture and I grew up kickboxing, you know, so I'm not like inexperienced when it comes to fighting. It's just, you know, growing up is kind of how you do it here. And, uh, so I get on the mat, you know, I'm standard jujitsu class. You do some warm ups. I barely got through it because I was completely out of shape. And then you do some drills, you learn some moves, and then you spar. And I'm the white belt and the big 300, you know, pound gi that <laughs> really fit well. And I don't know how to tie my belt, you know, all that sort of thing. And the instructor, you know, as you know from day one, they throw you in there, man. You're sparring. So at the end of the class. <laughs> Um, it was time to spar, and he puts me with a 150-pound uh, brown belt woman <laughs> that was half my size. She was about 50, 55 at the time, half my size, twice my age. And I'm thinking, there must be screwing with me or something, you know, you know, make, maybe make me feel good or whatever. So as we started doing <laughs> that, you're sitting there. I'm looking at her going, okay, I don't want to hurt her. We shake hands and go. I don't really know exactly what to do, but I know I don't want to hurt her. And... I don't even remember the move she did on me, probably some kind of arm drag. She arm drags, goes right to my back and proceeds to choke me mercilessly. And I am like stunned, I'm bewildered. I'm like tapping on my neck, like fiercely trying to get her to stop. And in my head thinking like, oh man, she took advantage of me. I was being nice, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so, I go, we're, we're gonna go again, right? So I'm like, okay, no more Mr. Nice Guy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put her in her place, that sort of thing. We shake hands and start going. I swear to God, in two and a half seconds, she's on my back again with the exact same move, choking me unconscious. And my eyes got really big. Like, what what just happened there? And this proceeded to happen over and over again for all of, like, the four minutes of stamina I had left in my body before I was completely spent and my ego was sufficiently battered. And uh, so I leave the academy, and I go and sit in my car demoralized, frustrated, confused. And I sit there thinking, I... I have to keep training. You know, this is interesting. It's good. It's probably going to be good for me. But more than anything, I have to, I can't go through my life as like, you know, a male, you know, my man card was just confiscated. I have to come back and learn if nothing else but to kick her ass. Like, that's just what I got to do. And they can say it, anybody wants to say it's sexist or whatever, but that's just what I was feeling in the moment. So I come back day after day after day, and I'm training with her and others, and I'm learning. And it took me about a year and a half later, uh, you know, to tap her is <laughs> really what happened. And that was a big mm. moment for me. And I remember telling her, and she just started cracking up hysterically. We're, like, great friends today. But that's really mm. what, at least getting to, like, very near uh, my, 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 I think I was at a, I was getting near to my blue belt by then. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of what kept me coming back was that motivation. But over time, mm. it was just, I didn't really care a lot about the belts. I think the, pur the purple belt was meaningful to me. And so was the black belt. But after that, I didn't, I didn't care. I just wanted to get good. Yeah. Like a lot of people, like I, I was talking the other day because, you know, I'm like in the master, like I'm 41. So if I go to a tournament, I can actually like sign up to be in the masters, you know, tournament part, which is like, you know, 41. But when you become a black belt, it's like everything starts there because there's however many thousands of black belts. Now there used to not be a lot, but there's more now. And you could be going up against any number of black belts that has like seven stripes on his belt. That's just going to murder you. And, and especially in the masters ones, cause these are grizzled veterans. They're only masters because they've been doing it for 20 years. It's not like, <laughs> did, did they really lose a step since 30? Probably. Not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever had to use in real life? Have you ever had, and now that you, you know, you're a black belt in jujitsu, have you ever had like a really like kind of a scary situation 
that was like an awkward situation where you shouldn't have been out in a back alley somewhere and actually had to use it? Uh, not normally. I've, I've only really had, you know, since, you know, in my jujitsu career, only I had two bad experiences like that. And both were actually in a jujitsu academy. So my work requires me to travel a lot. So I like to say I travel the world, meet new people and I fight them, you know, I do my security, <laughs> I do my work, but I always, I visited literally a hundred academies around the world. And, uh -huh. uh, and usually I try to stick to the jujitsu academies where they wear geese because there's usually less ego problems and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. This one time I was in Atlanta and I had to go to an MMA gym and I'm not opposed to, I'm a black belt, it's okay. You know, if somebody's world-class, they're probably not gonna hurt you. It's the ones that the muscle heads and the MMA fighters that maybe have two years of ground experience are the ones that uh, you have to worry about. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and you know, culture is a big deal in an academy because it's an injury prone sport to begin with. And you need really good training partners who don't want to fight you. They want to train with you and treat you as a training partner, but an MMA place isn't always like that. So, uh, I got paired up, you know, you know, cause I was doing, you know, the, the instructor was not terribly attentive, which is a telltale sign of uh, not a great culture, but he pairs me up on purpose because I'm an outsider with a, uh, I guess one of his, one of his fighters, the stereotypical MMA guy, you know, bald head, ripped, 220, you know, gnarled ears, tats everywhere, that sort of thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess he's used to, you know, rolling people over. So I'm looking at him, right? And I'm sizing him up going, wow, he's, he looks strong. He looks bubbly in terms of muscles ripped. He probably doesn't have a lot of stamina because it takes a lot of oxygen to run that amount of muscle. So I'll just see what he's got. Now let's take it easy. So he comes forward real fast with like almost like a, a double leg and I just arm drag and I, you know, just like the brown belt showed me when I, on my first day, just arm dragged him and clipped his neck on the way by. And I, I had him, I had him tapped uh, with a rear naked in about five seconds flat, which, uh, I guess really annoyed him. <laughs> so I wasn't gonna like, you know, and so he was probably a uh, blue belt level and no more. Again, I'm, I'm a black belt, so I was just gonna be cool about it. But during our next session, he was really trying to hurt me. You know, he was like grinding his elbows into my face, you know, you know, doing all those, you know, chin in the eye sort of crap, right? And like, I'm, mm. not, gonna, I'm not gonna tap to it. He's just trying to hurt me. So uh, I decided to run him out of a, run him out of stamina, you know, that caused him to exert more than I was. and. Uh, then I started dropping uh, knee on stomach into his uh, rib cage to make sure he was suffering a little bit, you know, the kind of, <laughs> <a lesson. laughs> and, uh, but I was pulling on his arm, pulling on his head just to make sure he was fighting, but I didn't want to tap him, but I could see he was like near exhaustion, but there was going to be a problem because uh, I, I let him up again. He goes right back to his same tactics. I know there's, you know, I can just feel it. There's going to be a fight. <clears throat> so, uh, I'm, I'm doing the, the risk, the whole risk management thing in my head going, okay, while I'm training with them, the clock's ticking down. I'm looking where my stuff is because it's time for me to leave and because the, the instructor's <laughs> not really paying attention. So I, you know, when the time is right, I slipped right to his back and I put him to sleep knowing he's going to wake up in about 15, 20 seconds. He's going to be a little disoriented for 30 seconds after that, but he'll be fine. <laughs> he's not going to be hurt. So I put him to sleep. I stand up and I walk directly over to my stuff and now that he's sleeping so he's not no more of a threat and i'm not mostly worried about the uh, instructor and the other students so i'm keeping yeah. my eye on the instructor as i'm walking out the door and i can see the instructor look at me confused he's going like where are you going we're not done yet and and he sees <laughs> like, i'm out yeah he sees this guy sleeping on the mat and he looks back at me and i kind of give him a look like you can let me leave because you knew what you were doing or we can escalate. What would you like to do here? And that was kind of like the, the quick back and forth look. And uh, he goes and attends to his guy and I grab my stuff and I was out of there. So that, that was probably the closest to like a real encounter that I've had. 
Yeah, it can get yeah the the egos can get crazy. Uh, when I walk in my school, there's like a nice little laminated sign right before you jump on the mat that says number one. Every dog has his day. <laughs> so don't <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> so uh, my my coach is Dan Semler. He was on he was on the UFC on the show, but um. Anyways, it's, it's a great school, man. You, we'd love to have you anytime. I would now, love to join. <laughs> yeah, I mean, please, you know, fly out here. It would be great. Or, you know, I can fly out there. I'd love to go. Now, is it all right if I pigeonhole you and throw some stereotypes into the mix? I mean, you're in Hawaii. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, do you surf? Yes. I, I, well, every, it's kind of like pickup basketball. Everybody in Hawaii surfs a little bit. <laughs> so, you yeah. got to, man. I mean, you wouldn't, I'm for, you know – my parents have a house in Maine, so I grew up on the ocean in Maine. So I surf every now and then, but uh, it's great. So you would absolutely love it here. Paddle paddleboarding is a big deal. I mean, just go out there and do it. There's a hundred beaches. Go for it. Man, I got we got to I got to figure that one out. Okay, so you know, to get on to something, this is supposed to be a technology show. Uh, to get on something very important, you know, jujitsu came after. I mean, you were a hacker first. Give me just. Did you grow up with computers or, you know, how, first, well, let's talk about some more important. How did you hack into Microsoft and Google? Because I think a lot of people have this stereotype of a hacker being this, you know, like what you see, like a guy in a, in a hoodie sweatshirt and it's dark and he's sitting in front of a computer and he's, you know, running all these algorithms and numbers and he's hacking into like a mainframe system. And I would imagine that the majority of people hack in due to human error but, you know, I'll let you answer that question. How did that happen? Like, how did you hack into to the Facebook or, you know, just pick one of them? Sure. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think well, first thing to point out is that uh, there really are, you know, like the, the stereotype of the hoodie in the basement and that, you know, that sort of thing of the stereotypic hacker, it, it absolutely exists. And some of them sure. are good. But predominantly, there are no whiz kid hackers like that. Um, just like jujitsu, the true skilled professionals, it takes a long, long time. Usually the guys that are really good are going to be in their late twenties, early thirties, or even older because they've been doing it for 20 years. Cause here's the thing, um, hacking to hack into something like a Facebook, Google, or Microsoft, it's against federal law. I mean, everything that I do, a lot of what I do outside the public speaking stuff, it's against federal law. And what happens is it makes it very difficult in order to practice without going to jail. So what happens with a lot, a lot of the young kids, you know, unfortunately, is they hack and they're experimenting and they're trying things. They don't really do any harm, but they do commit a federal crime and they get busted and they can no longer hone their craft. So there's been a few of us along the way that have been found managed to find work in a way to practice on these large systems and hone our skills over the last 15, 20 years until we get really, really good. And uh, so, you know, you know, my got my start and career kind of in, in hacking kind of like by, by a fluke or coincidence when I was about 19, I, you know, there was news stories that broke that somebody had found, you know, long time ago had found vulnerabilities in Yahoo and eBay and Amazon. And I wanted to learn how they did it, but also what def the defense mechanisms were. So one day, you know, when I was 19, I signed up myself with a brand new Yahoo Mail account, and this was like in 99, and proceeded to try to break into it. And the way I did it was, is it's a tiny bit difficult to describe, but you'll get the chance. It's, uh, you know how web pages are made up of HTML and JavaScript, the coding behind it? Yep. So I put in a little bit, a snippet of my own code, 
into my email and I sent it to another user. It was, it was my account still on the other side. So when you read the message in your browser, in Yahoo, the code would run and it would hack you. It would actually give your, your account information and send it automatically to me behind the scenes where I could break into it. So what that meant was as long as I had this code and I can say, I'm going to send you an email and the moment you read it, I owned your account. It was mine now. And it was just a very simple way to show what was possible. So yes, I you know did hack Yahoo Mail, quote unquote. I could have hacked into any one of 120 million users' accounts. But my experimentation was what you know what was the new technique? What could I do? What could I learn? And then how could I communicate it over to Yahoo so they'd fix the problem and everybody can have you know a better experience using the web? Mm, that's awesome. So so what did Yahoo say? Uh, so it was, it was an interesting dialogue. So I sent it over to Yahoo and I sent it and my note, my note to them anonymously because I, I had a good job, you know, and I was going to school and all that sort of thing. I didn't want to jeopardize anything because I didn't know what I was doing, if it was a federal crime or not. It might have been. Um, and it's certainly not a conversation you want to have with a federal prosecutor. So uh, I get back and somebody from Yahoo had emailed me back saying, you know, thank you very much for letting us know of the problem that you submitted. We have a few questions about it. And uh, we know that you want to be anonymous, but let us know if we can send you a t-shirt. And uh, <laughs> I can tell you right now, for, that was the greatest day ever. I got to hack Yahoo in my spare time. They, they thanked me for it. And they, you know, they took it seriously. And I was going to get a t-shirt. This is this like the most amazing day to me ever. And uh, so I'm having this back and forth dialogue with Yahoo. And they're saying, if you know any more issues, let us know. So I took that as permission to hack hack them mercilessly, which I did, you know, politely, and I sent them issues. And I come to find out later, uh, the person I was communicating with was one of the two founders of Yahoo. And uh, that led to someone on their security team and recruitment saying, we would like for you to come up and interview. And uh, subsequently, they offered me a job. So that started my career in hacking. My job there when I got to Yahoo was to hack everything that Yahoo had in sight with impunity. So I had the quote unquote license to hack anything that I wanted. That is awesome. The, yeah, there's kind of that that general. Uh, uh, I don't know where I heard it, but I've heard people say like, "Hey, if you want a really good, you know, federal government job, like you know, hack the government, but don't do anything because then they'll call you and give you a job." <laughs> you, uh, you hear that a lot. That's how, honestly that's how uh -huh. it used to be, but uh, it, it used to be that way. But now they actually have this new thing in the last two years called Hack the Pentagon. And it is a game you can play where they open invite anybody who really wants to, to hack the Pentagon. They have a, a set of systems and I think it's in like the thousands now. You can go after it to start finding problems in it and report them. And they'll pay you for the, for the issues that you find. And if I and imagine if you impress them enough, they might hire you or others might hire you because they see that you really do know what you're doing. That's all. And, and the, oh yeah, and, and the payments can be anywhere from as low as a few hundred dollars per problem but I've seen other people make five, six figures for things that they've been reporting. Hmm. Okay, let's talk about general business folk. I'm a telecom guy. I sell telecom, okay? Uh, people hack telecom by getting into someone's voicemail password and then, like, you know, rerouting or getting into someone's portal and rerouting SIP trunking to let's not pick on Nigeria because they get picked on a lot to, like, wherever to do calling cards and do, you know, various different call routing and stuff. That aside... I have a lot of various different hospitals and medical facilities and 
to me, the security and just the migration with EMR records and all these different companies over the next five years, to me, I just see like a huge gap. There's just going to be so much consolidation. What would it take? And first of all, do hackers want to hack into, say, a hospital? So like, let's say my local hospital, like Worcester Memorial Hospital. It's a huge network of major hospitals. Um, there's a lot of research going on. There's a medical school. There's like a bunch of hospitals. How long would it take someone to hack into a hospital and get patient records or, you know, take whatever the heck they want in a kind of a regional, maybe non-NFL city area? So I'd have to ask a few more questions. So just the, just the average hospital and yeah. uh, let's say, and remotely over the internet. Sure. And uh, is it, is, are we talking an actual adversary or something like of a, a test like some, if you wanted to see if somebody could do it, like which one? Well, first of all, I want to see if someone could do it, but yeah, an actual adversary. And, and first of all, because I was looking up, you know, some of your bullet points and, and hippo was one of them. Do hackers want to hack into a hospital and get patient information? Just curious. Oh, um, yeah. Is that like a big, yeah. Okay. For, for two reasons. The first one is, is that hospital records are, are fairly accurate with respect to uh, personal and private information that they can monetize with identity theft and other things. So that's uh, the data itself is very valuable to them. Um, the other one is, is that um, they've been making a lot of money on holding hospitals down. They encrypt all the data on the network until the hospital pays money to unlock the systems. We call it ransomware. And hospitals have been all over the world have been compromised that way over the last two years. Some have had to pay somewhere between 15 and a hundred grand on up to make sure operations get back, you know, in shape. And so, yes, they're definitely a target. So to answer your question, um, depends on what the attackers motivations are, what their goal is, but it's going to be under, under 12 to 24 hours normally. Mm. Now let's say they bring in someone like yourself what can you do to prevent it? That's a, it's a difficult one. So you, what you want, so when you break into a system, your mode is, I'm just going to find one way in one very, the fastest, easiest way in to get what I want. When you're playing defense in that environment, what you're trying to do is you're finding, trying to find and identify all the ways in so you can patch them up. So what a lot of things, what the, the process really is, is understanding what it is that you own, where all your servers, computers, and data is, um, figuring out what it's worth, what's on it, its value, what are the ways into all those things, and then you proceed to try to lock it all down. Maybe it requires patching or reconfigurations or turning systems off or redoing the network. So it's hard to give any guidance or any generic guidance to any one, you know, one organization, but it's that same, it's a very straightforward common sense process. Find out what you own, what is it worth, what is it at risk to? And once you find out the gaps there, then you can proceed to lock down anything that you want. Now, I would imagine human, general human interaction and training would be part of that equation as well. It, it has to be. But what you're trying to do with technology and the right systems is make it so it's forgiving on the user for mistakes because people are fallible and they're going to make mistakes. And if somebody misclicks something, you don't want the whole hospital network to go down or patient records going. So it has to be a bit more forgiving and resilient to human error. So we train the users or the, you know, the employees as best we can, but then we still have to make sure the system is secure in the event of mistakes. Awesome. So basically go through 
hierarchy of what things are worth. I would assume, you know, start with the stuff that's the most valuable first, lock that down and go down that fashion. Yes. And then, you know, as your, as your litmus test is where you bring in not, not, not so much me today, but guys like me were, that are trying to hack the system, they call them penetration testers or vulnerability assessment. And they're constantly <clears throat> battering your system to find the, find the weak points. So anytime you mess up, it's better that they find it first and communicate with you than somebody less desirable. So at the end of the day, you need that listmas test. You need that hacker going after you. How does a, a layman, and when I say layman, they might not be a layman. They might be a CTO of a major, uh, you know, maybe, maybe medium enterprise level company. How does a layman sift through and even know where to begin with security? Because I can tell you right now, there is a ton of white noise. It's like, it's like talking about the cloud. It's like you've got to move to the cloud. It makes no sense. That we call it the fog. We joke around. We call it the fog, right? Because like, well, which, which part of the cloud are you talking about? Are you talking about your Gmail account? Because that's in the cloud. Um, you know, like we, it's, it's such a, you, you talk about security, like, Hey, we gotta, we're going to worry about security. Now, obviously the IT director is going to know a lot more specific kind of like where his weaknesses are, but how does someone in a larger, you know, network where it might be, I don't know, it, there might not be a lot of clarity around really the network and what's going on. And there might be multiple parts patched together and then there might be a merger and someone gets fired and another guy comes in and it could be. Where does someone begin and how do they even know how to evaluate or go get a good security company? Sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a complicated question, but uh, I can just tell you the way that I would do it if, uh, you know, if I was in those particular roles. Um, first, you have to understand the business that you're in, you know, whether it's healthcare or whatever else. And uh, you, you, the, this job of a CTO or head of security is twofold. They have regulations and obligations, compliance really, which have nothing to do with security. Like we mentioned HIPAA earlier. You have to do the stuff that HIPAA says, otherwise the business will suffer financial harm. But just because you're HIPAA compliant or compliant to anything has absolutely nothing to do with your security posture. I can't tell you how many companies have been hacked even though they were compliant on whatever the standard. So just like I said before, the guidance I would give to everybody is first figure out what you own. Get your network topology down, where all your data lives, to the most accurate degree that's possible. Now that you know what you own, you can start figuring out where your gaps are. And you just run through the process. What do you own? What is it worth? What is it vulnerable to? And so on and so forth. And, and that's really all that you need to do. And it doesn't necessarily need to be any more sophisticated than that. But when it comes to actual defenses, then you can play the risk-reward game because some, certain defenses and activities, security controls can be kind of expensive. So if you can see how difficult it is for the hacker to break into a certain area, you can say, well, I could put this defense in place or I could put that defense into place. Which one makes the most sense? Which is the cheaper one? Which is going to give me the more bang for the buck? And that is the, the right conversation to have. Gotcha. Now, so right now you're the chief security at Sentinel One. Uh, chief of security strategy. So uh, I help customers strategize their defenses. I, I tell them what the bad guys are up to, what they're after, and some of the things, just like we're doing now, that, that they can do to protect themselves. Gotcha. And now you guys, you guys basically put together the, the plan or the roadmap. You don't actually come in and, and do it, or do you? 
uh, it's uh, Sentinel One is a very narrow scope. Most of the time in in security, you can bring in a security company, um, a big integrator that has a whole lot of vendors that they work with. So they have their they bring in their bag of tricks for all the vendors. But I'm a product vendor, like so. Most of the security companies are uh, sole solution. So in the case of Sentinel One, they are what we call a next generation endpoint protection. It's kind of like a antivirus on steroids. It's more than just antivirus. It's a whole lot more. So our job is to protect computers from getting infected with viruses. It's, it's at the end of the day, as simple as I can put it. And so when I communicate with CTOs, CISOs, CEOs, I go, okay, this is what the world of malware looks like. This is who's behind it. This is the tactics that they're using. Our product does X, Y, and Z to stop that. And this is what I think you have to do in order to not get infected. Uh, do you, are you guys like a license-based sales model, like per license? Yeah, it's it's licensed on a per endpoint or per computer model. We like working with small businesses all the way up to the mega course. It is at, the the technology is absolutely fantastic. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have uh, joined otherwise because you know I founded a very large company beforehand, and uh, but I wanted to get into the anti-malware space because it it really needed help. Um, we've been we've been doing antivirus for twenty years, and the problem has only gotten worse. And there's mm -hmm. very good reasons for that. And this company just had a better mousetrap, a better way of going about it. And furthermore, they were willing to guarantee that their results. So one of the reasons I was brought in was to design a product warranty for them, which is pretty much unheard of in security. Meaning if you buy the product and use it as recommended and you still get infected, there's a $1 million warranty standing behind it. It's completely unheard of in the industry, but that's how confident we are in our metrics and our stats that the product does work. That's a pretty good warranty, unless someone like wires out by mistake 1.2 million due to some mal you know malware thing. Um, so, well, for why don't you explain again for the layman listening to this? What I think we all know, like you know malware bites or download this for free. I mean, I think most people have done that, but they've just kind of done that to prevent like you know pop up ads on their computer from back in the day when we used to use Netscape or whatever. But do you want to give me like a general why don't you, like malware today? What is it? If you're going to explain that to someone in like you know one or two sentences, what do they need to hear to know? Uh, malicious malware is short for malicious software. It's software that does something to your computer that you really don't want it to do. It might encrypt your files. It might steal your passwords. It might liquidate your bank account. It's any software that you really didn't want on your computer, and it spreads very fast. It spreads very you know very easily all over the place. And for consumers, the, here's the real problem: for the consumers, ninety. I can't even could even give you a good product for consumers that works. So if I was telling a consumer like guidance on how not to get infected with viruses, um, I would tell them one, install an ad blocker. That's huge. Make sure your machine is up to date on patches. Uninstall Flash and Java because that's a major harbinger. And, uh, and install two-factor authentication on all your online accounts. And with that, you're going to be safer than 99.99% of everyone. <laughs> my, my dad said to me the other day, he's like, hey, uh, he calls me PJ. Hey, PJ, um, he's like, is it normal that I've had to replace my credit card eight times in uh, six months? I'm like, no, dad. <laughs> <laughs> Would this have stopped the the old crypto virus you know the the fear of the russians like logging in and, and locking all the files down like you said and then charging you fifty thousand dollars to get your business back online uh there's no guarantee so if uh if you're running a small uh business then there, but are there is a guarantee 
But let's be honest, there is a guarantee with you, a $1 million guarantee. There is. With me, there is a $1 million guarantee. Um, I know the math very well. I've had to deal with these guys a long, long time. So I know what they're, cap- uh, what they're capable of and their tactics. So if you're, if you're a, a business and you're able to invest in security, then there are really good products out there that, uh, that you would enjoy. I'm, I'm one of them. But the consumers are in a tough spot. The, the only other one I would add to that, the piece of guidance for both uh, use uh, normal everyday consumers and businesses is to uh, deactivate or uh, disable Word and Office macros. Those little automatically running programs in Excel or Word, those are a major uh-huh. conduit for viruses these days. And most people just don't know that. If you can disable that in your computer, you'll be light years beyond it. And that feature most nobody uses anyway, so you don't need it. So uninstall Java Flash, deactivate uh, uh, macros, install an ad blocker, use two-factor authentication, those four or five things, whatever it is, and you're solid. You're good. Not, it's not to say bad things still can't happen. It's just highly unlikely at that point. Okay. So in order to summarize the amazingness of this show, number one, go down the street, find a jujitsu studio where the instructor pays attention to people and there's not crazy people that are going to you're going to have to choke out and slip out the back door number one (laughs) uh number two if people wanted to get a hold of you sure if uh if people want to reach out to me directly like search for my name on google or go to jeremiagrossman.com there's tons of ways to uh, hit me up there whether it's email twitter facebook linkedin whatever so i'm always available like that um, or you can go same thing directly to the Sentinel One website. Um, you know, do a search for Sentinel One, and they have many different ways to get in touch with them to get a product demo. So I can help you do that. They can help you directly. But either way, we definitely want people to try out the product. We have hundreds, if not over a thousand, customers now, and the company is only like two and a half years old. So it's it's been a wild ride so far. I'm, I'm enjoying myself. So if anyone wants to get a hold of you, they can certainly contact me as well. Obviously, you can get a hold of Phil Howard at phil at philhowardsales.com. Um, you can find me at thehowardstrategy.com as well. Just enter in your information, put down, hey, I heard the show. I'd like to talk with Jeremiah or get you know talk about security. Uh, enter your information. I'll certainly uh, put you in contact with him. Jeremiah, if you had one other message to deliver to the public, you know, what would that be? And it, it can be two messages too, or it could be, you know, something about jujitsu. It could be, you know, about security. You know, what is that? You know, I think what I've learned most in my time as being in computer security or was in jujitsu. And I, I don't, I'm sure somebody said it before, but it's embracing that grind. It is at 1% better every day. The very little of what I've learned in hacking is technically, is technically, is cerebrally challenging, meaning it takes a real intelligent person in order to grasp, 99.99% of it, you just break it down into small chunks, you learn that thing, and you learn a bit more the next day and a little bit more the next day. And jujitsu is the same thing. One or two moves every class, 1% better, and you just keep doing that every single day. And maybe that works in every walk of life, but if you're willing to put in the time and grind it out and be consistent and disciplined and humble, that's going to take you so far, probably more most anything else that anybody could ask for. It's just that determination to not stop and improve every day. That was the mind-blowing moment I was looking for. Uh, 1% better every day. It, it really, if, if people could just wake up every day and do 1% better, it's just a tiny bit more. There's no fallback. 
you just you just keep going after it and you keep going after it and the only you know in jujitsu i mean you you you've probably experienced this I, I i'm not terribly concerned about like the guys that are bigger stronger even better i'm i'm always concerned about the other guy who will not stop who comes in every day gets his ass kicked and comes back and does it again and again and again because i know there's going to be one day he's going to be able, he's going to he just has that drive and I'm never going to beat him again because he's going to be keep doing it. That those are the people you fear, the ones that you do that do not stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, they're like they're upset because you're tapping them at the beginning. They keep coming back and you're like, darn it, I know this guy is going to tap me someday, and that's going to be it. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's going to be the last time you tap them, and like they're gone. <laughs> so that's the one. <laughs> Uh, so true, man. Hey, I, this has been a pleasure, man. I'm thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I may have to ask you back for another show sometime. If something comes up, you know, I was thinking maybe we'd do a demo someday of you hacking into something crazy and, you know, we'll, we should, we should we just won't say it to you. We should huh? definitely set that up for next time. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, I could probably sort out some kind of a cool hacking demo for the audience of, of somewhere of some kind. I've, uh, I have some, a few tricks up my sleeve. All right, man. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure.